After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Our Father in God, we pray you would help us to understand this text, this passage uh, about Jesus and his teaching and the response to it. And pray, Lord, that our response and the response of all in this room will be a response of praise and worship to the salvation we have in your Son. May we praise you today, Lord, for you are worthy and pray you would help us to understand your word. Amen. You may be seated. Every once in a while, I'll come across uh, polling data on what people think of Jesus and Christianity and the church. Pastor Sean has mentioned these kind of polls recently. Groups like Barna and Gallup will poll people and just get a response. How do people feel or think about Jesus and the faith? Uh, In December 22, the Barna group did a poll and said that 7 out of 10 Americans view Jesus positively. 7 out of 10 of Americans, the majority of Americans, according to this poll, view Jesus and his teaching favorably. Which makes me wonder if 7 out of 10 of Americans have read Jesus' teaching. And why do I say that? Because of John 7. And as you look through John 7, what you see is that Jesus' teaching wasn't always received favorably by the masses. In fact, there's quite a mixed response to the teaching of Jesus. Some are enthused, some believe, others are confused, others divided, others downright hostile, antagonistic to the message of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is as we go through John 7, see what the message of Jesus is, what he teaches, and he teaches authoritatively, see what Jesus teaches And then look at the response to Jesus' teaching. And what we find is that the authoritative teaching of Jesus brings division, opposition, and salvation. It does all three. That's my summary statement for the whole chapter. The authoritative teaching of Jesus brings division, 
opposition and salvation. There's a mixed response to the true and authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ. It saves, it divides, it brings opposition. We're going to see that in this chapter. A little bit of context for what's happening in John 7. You'll notice it said that it was at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, also it's called. You may be familiar with the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It was a week-long festival that took place in the fall, about six months after Passover. So Passover is in March or April. Feast of Booths is usually in September or October. And the Feast of Booths was probably the most festive, the most popular, the most celebratory of all the feasts of Israel. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, whole villages would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And during the week-long celebration, Israelites would travel to Jerusalem, set up tents or temporary booths, temporary homes, and basically camp for the week. Those who lived in Jerusalem would set up booths on top of their homes. And it was a way to celebrate and remember how God had led them in the wilderness out of Egypt and into the promised land, how they had lived in temporary homes along the way those 40 years. It also celebrated the harvest of grapes and olives and fruits. It was a way of celebrating God's provision, the harvest, how God had provided. And the Feast of Booze looked forward. It anticipated how God would provide in the future. He would provide a kingdom, a place to live eternally. In the midst of all this excitement, in the midst of the excitement about Jesus' miracles and all that he was doing, Jesus comes and teaches. And he brings a mixed response, division, opposition, and salvation. So we're going to look at three sections of Chapter 7, I think there are really three main statements, three main ideas that Jesus brings forth in his teaching, and then there's a response to each of those. So three main ideas, and then we'll see a mixed response, and in each of those, hostility to what Jesus says and does. First, in verses 1 through 13, which we just read, Jesus is hated by the world. That's his first uh, teaching. That's the first thing Jesus teaches. Uh, He is hated by the world, and we see the response to him. Jesus is hated by the world. I said throughout this chapter, we're going to see opposition primarily from Jewish leaders. What's surprising about verses 1 through 13 is that the opposition to Jesus comes from his own flesh and blood. It comes from his brothers, doesn't it? It says in the text, John records, that they did not believe yet. They saw his miracles, and they saw that he had done that. They were saying, do more, actually. But they didn't quite believe yet. They didn't quite believe in the whole Messiah thing. They weren't convinced that Jesus was who he says he was, that he was the Messiah. So they say, go up to Jerusalem. Go to the Feast of Booths. Go where things are happening. And go make a show in Jerusalem. Maybe they were worried about their family reputation. Remember from John 6, Jesus was losing disciples by saying some hard things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Maybe they were worried about the following of Jesus, saying, Jesus, you've got to win some people back, even us. Go, do something spectacular. Now's the time, isn't it, at the festival? How does Jesus respond? Easy for you to say. You can go up there anytime and do anything. But it's not Jesus' time yet. Not Jesus' time to 
make a big spectacle. The hour is not yet there for Jesus to do the biggest thing in Jerusalem that he's going to do. It wasn't his time yet. He says in verse 7, look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. The world cannot hate you. What he's telling his brothers, these would be his younger brothers, presumably, from Joseph and Mary. He's telling his younger brothers, the world can't hate you because you're just like the world. In your sinful unbelief, you have not yet separated from the world. You are worldly. Have you ever heard that phrase before, worldly, worldliness? What does that mean? Kevin DeYoung defined it this way. I think it's helpful. He said, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. His brothers, in their sinful unbelief, they were normal. That was what the world was normally about. Jesus, on the other hand, was righteous and he was strange. He was different than the world. In fact, the world hated him, he says. Why? Because in his righteousness, he shined a light on the world, called out the sins of the world, and the world hated him for it. Most Americans have a favorable, a favorable view of Jesus. Jesus says, the world hates me. Most Americans call the church judgmental. It might be that most Americans, if they read the words of Jesus, would call Jesus judgmental too. I think that most modern Americans don't understand Jesus' view of their sin. Our modern world might have a favorable view of Jesus. The irony is that Jesus does not have a favorable view of the modern world. Jesus points out the sin, the evil in this world, as he does in John 7, as he does throughout the Gospels, and he receives opposition for it. Jesus knows he's going to get opposition, so he doesn't do the big thing that his brothers want him to do. Now, here's a little bit of a tricky question you might have noticed. What does Jesus tell his brothers? I'm not going. What does Jesus do? He goes. Now we've got a theology problem, don't we? Is Jesus a liar? Did he just outright lie to his brothers? I mean, I'm not unfamiliar with brothers lying to each other and fighting, but this is Jesus. He's supposed to be cut from a different cloth. I think what's going on here is Jesus is saying, I'm not going when you want me to go. I'm not going at your word. But as the Father prompts... Jesus goes. It's kind of similar to earlier when Mary said, hey, could you please help with the wine situation? And Jesus says, hey, it's not my business. And then he does it. He's communicating, I, I'm not on your timeline. I'm not on your clock. I'm not doing things according to your whims. I am doing the will of the Father. So implied here is the Father directed Jesus to go. So he goes a couple days. He goes secretly. He goes quietly because there are Jewish leaders there wanting him dead. Others are very favorable toward him. He's a good man. They have a, a positive look on Jesus. Others say he's a deceiver, which would be a way of saying he's a false prophet. 
There's a mixed response to Jesus, and that's what he's entering into. Starting in verses 14. I'm going to read verses 14 through 36. This is a long chunk of text. But I think there's really one thing going on in this text. And in this text, in 14 through 36, Jesus is teaching that he is not from this world. There's a question that pops up around Jesus' origin. Where is he from? Uh, where did he come from? And, that, and that's a big point of debate and confusion. And what Jesus teaches in these verses is that Jesus is not from this world. First, he's hated by this world. Now Jesus teaches that he is not from this world. And that centers the whole discussion, verses 14 through 36. So track with me. There's a lot of text, but we can do it. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him as a man of truth, there is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging my mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When this Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
So my plan in life wasn't always to be a pastor. Initially, I went to college studying biology and science. My dad is a doctor, and I thought, okay, I'll just do that. That makes sense. I didn't really have any other plan, but I studied biology and got a biology degree thinking I was going to go to med school. Instead, I went to seminary. One of the things that the biology degree helped me with, and I know nothing about biology anymore. I have emptied all of that from my mind. I've said this repeatedly. Don't come to me uh, for any. Google will help you much better than I can. I've forgotten all the science. But what it did help me with, and what was kind of a parallel between my studying in science and in seminary, is that whenever you make a claim, you have to back it up with evidence. In science, you have a theory, and you want to back that up with evidence, hard evidence. In Seminary, uh, you have an idea. You want to back it up with evidence, particularly from Scripture. You don't want to just say things on your own authority and trust that people should believe in you or believe what you say. No, you've got to back up what you're saying. The Jewish leaders and the rabbis of this time had the same understanding. That was the way they were trained and they were taught. If you were going to say something, you wouldn't speak on your own authority. You'd say, Rabbi so-and-so, my instructor, I'm citing him. I'm just continuing on the school of thought, whether it be the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai, whatever it was, you would appeal to the authority of the rabbi that you trained under and the scholars before you. To speak on your own authority, be arrogance and stupidity. You can't just make things up. So when Jesus gets up, And teaches with authority, they wonder, where did he get that truth? Where did he come from? What rabbi did he train under? From what we know, he he was basically homeschooled. Like, he he did his own thing. We don't know which rabbi or school he came from. So they're questioning, where did he get this authority? So Jesus is going to answer that. And he's going to agree with them. Jesus will say, no one should speak on their own authority, and I don't. My teaching is not my own. Verse 17. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Jesus says plainly, I don't speak on my own authority. I don't make stuff up. It's just that my rabbi is God the Father. That's where I come from. That's where my authority is drawn from. And then he turns the tables. On leaders, it says, well, speaking of authority, how come you don't obey the authority of Moses? You say you have Moses as your authority, and yet you're trying to commit murder. So why are you seeking to kill me? You are seeking to kill an innocent man who has done nothing wrong. That is a violation of the law of Moses. Not one of you follows the law of Moses, your authority. Crowds call Jesus crazy. Who wants to kill you? They don't know about the plot, some of them about the plot of the leaders. They say, why do they want to kill you, Jesus? And Jesus goes back to what happened in John 5. Hey, remember that miracle I did? Healing the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. When did Jesus heal that man? What was the conflict? Why would there be a conflict about healing? What was the conflict? He healed that man on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest where no work was done. They considered that healing a work, a violation of the Sabbath law of rest. So Jesus corrects them and says, all right, let's think about a different case. Circumcision. When was circumcision supposed to happen? 
on the eighth day after male was born. Um, I won't do the odds in my head. One out of every seven, roughly, babies will have the eighth day on a Sabbath, right? The eighth day will fall on a Sabbath. So what do you do? Do you circumcise or do you wait a day to not do that work on the Sabbath? And all the Jewish people, the leaders and the rabbis had concluded, no, circumcision is not a violation of the Sabbath. Because circumcision is for spiritual health, it takes priority. They saw it as a spiritual uh, act, consecrating, sanctifying the child to the Lord that superseded the Sabbath. So Jesus says, okay, you're saying that you can do this work on one member of the body on the Sabbath. I heal the whole body. I consecrated the whole body on the Sabbath. I bring healing to the whole person with my authority from God to heal. And he's implying an authority that supersedes that of Moses. Now there's mixed opinions about Jesus again. Notice some say, well, he's the Messiah. Like, what more could you want? All the miracles he's done, healing a paralyzed man. Could we ask for more? Clearly he's the Messiah. Others have an objection. What's the objection? Where'd he come from? I can think about my own kids and where my own kids are from. You would say maybe, oh, your kids are from Olathe, right? They're all raised in Olathe, and that would be accurate and true. Two of my kids weren't even born in Kansas. One was born in Oregon, the first, and the last one was born in Missouri, over in Lee's Summit. So when they asked the question, where are you from? Well, you could say, well, I was from Olathe, Kansas. Or you could say... I was from Portland, Oregon, or Lee Summit, Missouri. All that would be true. The people knew, as far as they knew, where's Jesus from? Galilee, Nazareth. That's a problem on two accounts. Because it was well known that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Jesus isn't from Bethlehem. Of course, we should read this with a smile and say we know what they don't know, that he actually was born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, in Galilee. So there's one opposition. Uh, no, that can't be Messiah. Messiah is supposed to be born from Bethlehem. Clearly Jesus isn't. They're misinformed about. The other view was that when the Messiah would come, we actually wouldn't know where he came from, that his mystery or his origin would be a mystery. In fact, there were some who believed that when the Messiah came, not even the Messiah would know he was the Messiah, that he would just kind of suddenly start doing the Messiah thing, and then all would realize, including himself, oh, I am the Messiah, once he started saving Israel, so that his mystery or his origin would be a mystery. All right? So they say, because we know where Jesus is from, and it's from Galilee of all places, the, the rubes up north, clearly the Messiah can't come from there. So Jesus cries out with a loud voice, yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own authority but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. You see what Jesus is saying? Yeah, you know where I'm from, humanly speaking. I'm also from God. I'm not from this world. 
I have an authority, not my own, because I'm sent from the Father. Jewish leaders know exactly what he's saying, and they want to kill him. This man saying he's from above. And I love what comes next. He says, not only am I from heaven, I'm going back there. I'm going where you cannot come. At least not yet, and especially if you don't believe. I'm going back to my heavenly home. Where I'm going, you can't come. And, and they see that, they hear that and think, you going to the Gentiles? They see that as the place they can't go. The nations. We should see the irony in this. Where is too far to the nations? We proper Israelites can't go there. Is Jesus going to the nations? Well, actually, yeah, he is. After he goes back to his heavenly home. So Jesus is establishing he is not from this world. He is from heaven. He's returning there. He has an authority from heaven. And they have a mixed response to that. Some want to kill him. Some say maybe he's the Messiah. And then we get to the third teaching of Jesus in verses 37 to 52. First, Jesus teaches he's hated by the world. Second, he teaches he's not from this world. And third, he's going to teach that he gives the Spirit to the world. Jesus gives the Spirit to the world. Look down at verse 37 with me, and I'll read to verse 32, or 52. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So this is set, this whole interaction, at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Have any of you heard of the water-pouring ceremony that went on during the Feast of Booths? I hadn't before either, you know, study these things, right? Uh, but there was a ceremony, a well-known ceremony called the water-pouring ceremony, where each day of the Feast of Booths, all seven days or eight days, 
the priests would go with a golden jar and take water from the pool of Shalom, which was below the temple, and they would make a processional with that golden jar of water, bring it up to the temple and to the altar. And as they paraded up, as they entered the water gate, it was called, they would sing psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. And then there would be kind of a climax to that with Psalm 118. They would blast horns, shofars, while men waved branches and fruit in their hands, part of the celebration of the harvest. And then the priests would pour water, the water they carried, into one bowl. And then the daily wine offering in the other bowl, and they would pour both bowls onto the altar. It was a ceremony of remembrance of how God had provided water for them. Now, you may remember the story of Moses striking the rock in the desert when the Israelites were thirsty and wanting water. God provides water through a rock. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's anticipation that God would provide water for them. Tons of prophecies speak about water flowing once again when the Messiah comes. So the ceremony was done, this pouring out of water in remembrance of how God had provided for them, particularly how God had provided water, and looking forward to how God would provide water once again. And in fact, there were some who believed that on, that, on the final day of that water ceremony, during the Feast of Booths, there were some who believed that's when the Messiah would reveal himself, would come. Okay, with all that, now read Jesus, who says, John tells us on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus says, I'm the water. All this anticipation, all you've been looking for, the life from God, the provision from God, I'm him. There are some people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God or divine. You aren't reading Jesus. He's just told you, I come from heaven, <laughs> come from God with his authority. I am the life God gives Quoting Isaiah 55, 1, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Come. You don't have to pay for it. Without price, come, and you will find life in me. This is the gospel call that Jesus makes. I am the Messiah. All who come to me will live. Not only will they live, it says they will have waters, living waters flowing from within them. I've mentioned this before, There's, if you read back Ezekiel 47, a picture of the new temple, the restored temple, and out of that temple will flow a river of water, bringing life to all creation. Now here Jesus says, anybody who comes to me, they will have that water within them flowing from them, saying, you will be the temple of God that brings life. Not only you will have life, I will give you life, you will bring life. And what is that life? John clarifies for us very helpfully. That life is the spirit. The spirit that brings life, the spirit that connects us to God, the spirit that 
revives us and unites us with him. That Holy Spirit is the water Jesus gives. And Jesus will pour out. It's a clear statement, and then once again, the response is mixed, isn't it? Some say he's the prophet. He is the Moses-like figure we've been waiting for. Some say he's the Messiah. And there was deliberation as to whether the prophet and the Messiah were the same figure or different. Both bases are covered. Then some say he doesn't have the right background. He can't be the Messiah. He doesn't come from Bethlehem. We get to the last interaction with the Jewish leaders. It's a humorous one. They sent the temple guards out to arrest Jesus. And why didn't the guards arrest Jesus? They were pretty compelled by what Jesus had to say. These guards in the temple, they aren't just um, untrained cops. They're Levites. The guards were chosen from the tribe of Levi, people who had religious background and training. So when they go and hear Jesus, they say, "Uh, uh, something's compelling about this guy. There's something kind of interesting. Maybe we shouldn't arrest him yet. Maybe we should hear him. And what did the leaders say? Oh, you idiots, you're just like the crowds. And notice what authority they appeal to. What is the authority that the Jewish leaders appeal to? Verse 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. They point back to their own authority. We don't believe he is the Messiah. Clearly, we are the ones who determine right and wrong. Jesus said in verse 18, whoever speaks on their own does does so to gain personal glory. They're speaking on their own. And they're speaking wrongly. None of us believe in him. Nicodemus pipes up. Hey, I'm kind of, (laughs) he doesn't outright say it, but he's saying, I've talked to him a little bit. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Would our law allow a man to be executed without trial, without speaking. It's actually kind of a violation of our law. You who say you know the law. There's all sorts of irony going on. And they say, lastly, no prophet can come from Galilee. There are several Old Testament prophets who came from Galilee. All this irony showing the foolishness, foolishness of the leaders The reality of who Jesus is in this mixed response. Jesus is the true prophet. He's from Galilee. He's also from Bethlehem. He's also from David. He's also from God. All right, so what do we learn? Jesus has taught us he's going to be hated by the world. He's taught us he's not from this world. He's taught us he's going to give the spirit and life to the world. And in all that teaching, we learn something about Jesus and the response to him. So I want to point out three things about Jesus and the response to him and then two quick applications for us. First, note, Jesus will be opposed for various reasons. Don't we see that here in John 7? What are the reasons people oppose Jesus? Well, you haven't proven yourself yet. You really haven't done anything to convince me. You haven't done what I wanted you to do. That's the opposition of the brothers. You haven't done what we want, 
and what will convince us. And until Jesus, you become our servant and do what we want, we're not going to believe in you. That's one reason people oppose Jesus. He hasn't done enough for them. Or there's the question of Jesus' origin. We don't like where this Jesus thing comes from. We don't like its origin. We don't like, uh, to put it in maybe our modern terms, the question that people have in our day, well, isn't Jesus just a white man's religion, Christianity just a white Western religion? We don't like the origins of that. And they're misinformed about that, just as the original people were misinformed about Jesus' origin. But they bring up the question, oh, Jesus isn't from the right place. Christianity is not from the right place, so we're not going to believe in Jesus. Or they oppose Jesus because he speaks and teaches with authority. And we don't want to submit to an authority higher than ours. This is the reason proud men reject the teaching of Jesus. Because accepting the teaching of Jesus requires submission, humility, a recognition of your own sin, our own sin. And it requires calling Jesus Lord. And we're not prepared to accept his authority. So many don't follow Jesus for that reason. But the point is people oppose Jesus for various reasons, and I want that to instruct us. Be prepared for people to oppose Jesus for various reasons. And I say that to you pastorally, because... We're encouraging you to read the book of John with people, aren't we? So you may not uh, proclaim and teach at a great festival like Jesus did. You might not be a preacher on a Sunday morning. You might not teach a Bible class. But somewhere in life, you might be reading the book of John with somebody else, going through a Bible study, just talking about Jesus. And I want you to be prepared that some will simply refuse to follow. And some will oppose him. And I don't say that to be doom and gloom. I say that to just point out reality. Because none of us are better teachers than Jesus. Or more faithful teachers than Jesus. And Jesus, in his most faithful teaching, had people oppose him directly. And the temptation for us in the church is to think, well, if only we did something right, then people would believe. And whenever people don't believe, it's because we didn't do it right. So clearly, if people reject Jesus, then we've got to alter the message, change something up, become more marketable, be more friendly, don't say anything too harsh that people might reject. We don't want anybody to hate us. So if we could twist it around, then we'll get everybody to accept Jesus. And it's a false premise at the beginning. Just be prepared. Rejection of Jesus might be the direct result of faithful teaching. It might be because you faithfully communicate who Jesus is that people reject him. It's what happened with Jesus. Related to that, similar to that idea, Jesus will cause division and hostility. Be prepared for mixed responses. Some will believe. Some won't. There will be division. Jesus teaches that to families. Brother will turn against brother. Child against parent. Jesus is teaching and who he is will cause division. Do not be surprised. So why do we teach Jesus? Because, third, Jesus will give life to all who believe. He's the source of the spirit. He's the source of life. And all who believe will have life in him. 
no matter your background, no matter training. You don't have to be the religious elite. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to come from the right place. Anyone who believes the gospel call that goes out to the whole world, anyone who believes will have life. So what do we do? Here's my plea to you in closing. First, decide who Jesus is. John 7 is written so that you could see who Jesus is or at least see who Jesus claims he is. The claim of Jesus that he is the Messiah from God who brings the spirit and life to the world. That's his claim. So you have to decide, will you believe him? So all of us, my plea to you, decide who Jesus is. Young people, kids, decide who Jesus is. Decide for yourself who Jesus is. Not based on popular opinion, not based on what your friends think. Decide for yourself. Who is Jesus? And my second plea, decide if Jesus is worth it. Knowing the opposition that may come, knowing the division that may come, is following Jesus worth it? Worth the social pressure, worth the hostility, worth the division? Is eternal life in Jesus Christ worth it? Because the authoritative teaching of Jesus brings division, opposition, but also salvation. Just looking back at the beginning of the passage, what did Jesus' brothers want him to do? Go to Jerusalem. Do something big. Do something miraculous. Ultimately, eventually, Jesus did what they wanted. Maybe not how they wanted, but what they wanted. Because eventually, Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he did something big that has changed the world ever since. The most well-known act. <laughs> Not something done in secret. Something that the whole world has known since. He died on the cross for sins. The greatest miracle. And because he has done that, now the, off the offer goes out, not from Jesus alone, but from the whole church throughout all history, come and drink, those who are thirsty. It's how the book ends. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit, God, and now the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The offer that Jesus proclaimed, water flowing now comes out from his body to the world. If you want life, come to Jesus. Would you pray with me?
And Father, I pray that we would be so convinced of this free offer of the gospel that all who believe in Jesus, all who are thirsty will come uh, to him, will have life. May we be so convinced of that that we're willing to keep proclaiming it no matter who hears and who responds. They would never waver from that message, that we would understand there are going to be mixed responses to it, but we would never depart from the message that Jesus himself taught, that the spirit of life is available to all who will believe. Keep that message on our lips, Lord. No matter what the season is, whether it's in season and popular, whether it's out of season and unpopular, pray that all in this room would decide that Jesus is the Messiah and never waver from that truth. We thank you for speaking it to us and we praise your name. Amen.